Hi everybody, my name's Sam. And my name's Ben. And we're the, the Book Bear Bear Boys. Boys. <laughs> Great. Do you think we got it? It's it's wonderful, I'm sure. <laughs> Probably not. I really hope. It. Yeah. I, I really mean, I love too that he, his spell is like Morpheus Georgius Gorfus. 1998 yeah. like he's like yeah. you have to speak the magic words and then say the year Do these motherfuckers even like count in bc ce you know ad language like how are they accounting for their own years yeah there's a lot of i think discrepancy in the past stuff they are eating the, i don't know i just let's get into it man yeah let's i have a it. lot of thoughts okay. um uh, so Hi, everybody. I'm Ben. And I'm Sam. And we are the Book Fair Boys, where we're talking about R.L. Stein and nostalgia and all this stuff. And I'm joined today by a delicious ranch water. Um, which... <laughs> Ew. I mean, my first thought is watery salad dressing. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, when you mentioned um, Bunsen burner coffee or whatever it was last oh. week, I was. <laughs> what was it? It was uh, Grog, Highland de Grog coffee. Highland Grog, yeah. It's like... How was that? It was good. So I got five flavors. A bunch of them were really good. And then it was the strawberry cheesecake one was my least favorite. But Highland Grog was second mm. to the bottom. Strawberry cheesecake coffee does sound like the worst combination of potential flavors. Yeah. It's like onion coffee. <laughs> yeah. So what is ranch water, man? Is that... Ranch water, it's a seltzer. It's a hard seltzer with 100% agave and natural lime juice. I don't know what that means. It tastes kind of like a, a very light tequila, but it's only 4%, okay. so it's a nice little seltzer boy. Okay, so you can operate heavy machinery after this. Uh, I don't know. I don't know I could operate heavy machinery before this, so I'm not going to make any promises. <laughs> <laughs> so we read... Actually, you know what? You MC this one, Sam. Oh, well... This is your... This is the one you wanted to do, so... <laughs> this, this is the one that you've read. <laughs> yeah, um... Thank you, Ben. I remembered very little about this book. I'll say the things that I remembered, like, remembering along the way, okay. I guess. But I remember really liking this one. So we read Night in Terror Tower. It's Goosebumps number 27. So we skipped ahead. Yeah. The tagline on the front uh, is, it's going to be a long night. And it's like L dash, O dash, N dash. Yeah, it's a weird way of doing a long, long, but, you know. I'll accept yeah. it. It's all capital, too. It's, like, completely capitalized long. But yeah, so there was anyways. a part of me that was like, does that stand for something? Am I yes. being dumb? Like, it's going to be a legitimately <laughs> oscillating <laughs> negative... Never-ending <laughs> goiter. Goiter. <laughs> the curse of the never-ending goiter. <laughs> <laughs> a legitimately oscillating never-ending goiter. It, that's a really bad night. <laughs> yeah, that sounds terrible. <laughs> The one on the back makes a little more sense. All locked up and no place to go. So. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Ben, what was what happened in this book? What was this oh book about? Oh my god. So much happened in this book. And um, this was, I think, the most displacing of the Goosebumps books so far. So you are following Eddie and Sue. The book is from Sue's perspective. She's the older sister. She's the 12-year-old in this one. Eddie, her younger brother, is 10. Eddie is a little bit of a scaredy cat, but he's also a good pickpocket, which are the two things that we established that are relevant to the plot. Yeah. They're in London, they're visiting some places, and for some reason, when their tour guide is like, 
let's go to either Hyde Square or Terror Tower or something like that. Yeah. Eddie, even though he's a scaredy cat, is like, let's go to Terror Tower. So they go to this place called Terror Tower, which is obviously a place R.L. Stein visited in real life and was very fascinated by. Um, I don't know. Is it real? I assumed that it was real because it felt like R.L. Stein must have gone here and just taken copious notes on the way that people used to torture each other. Yeah, it seemed like with other Goosebumps books that we've read, there's some idea or like obsession that sparks it. Like you were saying, oh, R.L. Stein noticed the Gak phenomena and yeah. was like, that can be spooky. Or, or read a book on mummies. Like, yeah. And like, yeah. But this, this is... one seems like Arl Stein got his hands on something good that he only half understood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my apologies to the people of London who are listening to this. Um, well, this book is really like anti-Londoners. Yeah. They're they, they not presented in a good light. Well, they're very cold people in this. Yeah. But, or maybe, I don't know, maybe it was the 90s and everybody was very self-sufficient. But these two kids. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. They're in London. They're visiting this place called Terror Tower, which might or might not exist in real life, but it was apparently a torture chamber, a prison for political prisoners for a long time. It's just an old fort from back in the Roman days that had served many purposes. And the creepy part was they're taking these kids through this like torture chamber section, which shows a rack, and that's basically it that it shows, but it's like racks and thumbscrews and like... You're like, oh, wow, Arl Stein's going to just show us a bunch of tortured equipment and be like, isn't that spooky? So that's how it starts, <laughs> yeah. right? You're like, torture equipment, isn't that spooky? There's a couple of false spooks where the kids are walking around and they'll see somebody dressed in a costume who is clearly a like, actor there. But then those get interspersed with some other spooks of a guy who's like following them intently. And this is where it gets interesting. They end up in the tallest tower in the top room where they learn about Prince Edward and Princess Suzanne who were trapped there for years and years until suddenly and then they stop listening to what the conclusion of the story was. <laughs> yeah, um, they're like, that's enough exposition for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kept wondering as a reader, if I'm a 12-year-old reader, do I pick up on this? Because they're also being yeah. stalked by this man, and like that's clearly the present threat. There's like a man that keeps looking at them, that they're distracted by. But you know, there's very clearly the seating that somehow they or some version of them was in this room at some point. Yeah, um, I, I noted that too because the beginning it does the same sort of thing that other Goosebumps books have done, where it's sort of like here is the explanation, and we sort of shove that aside. Like, they're in London because their parents are at a conference and they have a meeting, so they're on this tour while their parents are in the meeting. And then there's sort of this, like, great, we did it, done, their names are Eddie and Sue, they have the same brother-sister dynamic, and now we can get into the story. So when he lingers on, like, this story about Eddie and Susanna, Sue has this moment where she's like, feels like we've been in this room before. I just feel so sad for these two random characters and blah, blah, blah. I was like, yeah, there is a lingering on that that... I, I don't know if I would have picked yeah. up on that when I was 12. Like, my adult writer brain was like, okay, this is the thing that this is about, right? I don't know how it fits in. Like, do Edward and Suzanne somehow get transported in the past and become princes and princesses and they're in this tower? Are they somehow ghosts? Uh, you know, but I was like, there's going to be something here that's going to be tied to them and this space. But as a kid, again, I don't know, because you got this, like, lingering presence. Anyways, they get left behind in the room. They, like, turn around, and the tour group's just gone. And so they go running through this, like, spiraling tower, and they get lost. And then suddenly there's this man that is chasing them. And he's chasing them and keeps trying to grab them. And he says he's never going to let them go away. 
and it's very unsettling. He keeps like grabbing them and then doing this thing where he pulls out white stones, <laughs> and it's the most awkward thing I yeah. can imagine. Like he's got three white stones that he needs to stack on top of each other, and you can almost see him fumbling with these white stones in his hands. I have no idea what he's doing at this point, obviously. That was one of the things I remembered, too. I like how finicky the white stones were. So finicky. Um, they're just like, they're like toppling. They're like yeah, falling it's over. Bullshit magic system. Because he's like running at them. Arlstein describes his hands as like forward. Like fingers are waggling, too. So he's sort of cartoonish. Like, I'm going to get you. And then he like grabs them. And he's like, I told you, you couldn't escape. Now you're coming with me. And then he has to turn around and through the stones like die that he's trying to stack on each other like even flat-sided die it's like that would be hard but these seem like round stones so he's doing something there and then they escape again into the sewers where a wall of rats appear and they chase this guy away the kids jump up in the air and grab onto something i don't even know the geography of this scene but they jumped up in the end they grabbed onto something so that the wave of rats rolls underneath them and then proceeds to eat the guy's hat or like some other thing like these rats are like eating clothes yeah Yeah, they run underneath kids escape up out of the sewer just in time to find out that the tour bus that held them all has decided to just leave them behind (laughs) just left behind a pair of uh tweens unsupervised children yeah and it's on to the next thing so they get a taxi dude And this is where things start to get interesting. They get this taxi dude, and Sue's like, okay, I've got a little bit of money because she's got some coins in her pocket. She tells the taxi guy, like, my parents will pay pay you, or, you know, here you can have this money. And she gives him the money, and he's like, what the fuck is this, basically? And it's like old coins. It's heavy coins, and he's like, "Um, we use money here. Like, we have money. (laughs) Like, like, we use pounds. Yeah, Yeah, he's like, you trying to pay me with play money? And I love British money, too. I spent some time in the UK, and pounds are really fun to play. Because if you have, like, five dollars, five American dollars, it's like a five dollar bill. But if you have five pounds, it's like a bag of balloons. <laughs> <laughs> it's really great. Yeah, so she tries to give him this stuff, and he's like, "What? what is this? Poor fool, if only he knew the riches he was turning down. I know. But they get to the Barclay, which is where their parents are, and then they go inside. They go up to their room. The room is locked. The parents aren't there. Creepo. I'm into it. I'm, I'm like, I'm all about yeah. what's happening right now. They talk to a hotel maid. She lets them in. All the parents' stuff is gone. They're like, oh, God, well, let's go check in the front desk because maybe their meeting went long. There's no meeting. There's no meeting happening. And then the guy at the front desk is like, well, just tell me what your names are and we'll try and figure out where the parents are. And then Sue and Eddie can't remember their last name. And I lost my mind. And <laughs> went, me too. And went to Nora and I was like, Oh my god, this is... So this is like the child horror, I think. Yeah. And it's interesting as an adult to read it, because it's also an adult horror, which is like, what if you find yourself in a foreign place, and somehow all ties to a previous life, or to your like sense of self are severed? You know, I mean, because those foreign places already do that. Foreign places like disassociate you from your you know sort of shared reality, your community. They like are things where you're constantly discovering... You know, you never quite feel settled. You never feel safe. And so, like, what if the safety that you can retreat to inwards goes away? Like, what if literally, in this case with kids, like, you are not just a lost child. You are a lost child where it's impossible to find your parents. I love that moment, too, because all the previous Goosebumps books have sort of been, like, you're, you're just watching a thing that you already understand happen. Like, welcome to Dead House. You're like, oh, they're ghosts or whatever. Yeah. And, like, dad's a plant 
probably shouldn't keep playing with the slime, you know, mummies. Yeah. But this one, this was the point when I was like, fuck, I don't know what's going on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. I mean, you know that there's like so many threats and the threats have stacked on each other in an interesting way. You've got this guy that's chasing them. Yeah. You've got like, whatever, the rats, they're fine. I mean, maybe they're a thing, maybe they're not. But you've got a guy that's chasing them. You've got this like weird association with the tower. You've got this money that doesn't work. And then you've got them not being able to remember who they are. And you're like, okay, the pieces are stacked. And he does it appropriately where the pieces are stacked right before he begins answering the questions. So he's like, set up the questions. And he yeah. does start answering them in the next few sections. But what happens next, Sam? This is the goosebumps that I remember where it's like kids completely in an other space going on an adventure. Like even Welcome to Death House where they were in a completely other space. This whole town is spooky. There was still something that felt, like, suburban and safe about it. Yeah. But I remember, like, characters going to summer camps and shit. I remember, like, um, them getting stuck in, like, time warps or, like, crazy <laughs> labyrinthian haunted houses and yeah. shit, you know? So this was really cool. They go into this restaurant and they're like, okay, we gotta remember what happens. And they have high tea, uh, which is awesome. Uh, it's just <laughs> like that they suck tea. I also love that R.L. Stein takes time to like explain things to his children audience. He's like, he's yeah. like, they're like, hi, tea. And they're like, but we're hungry. We don't want to have tea. And he's like, oh, no, yeah. children, high tea is something that we British people do where there are snacks. And they're like, oh, thank you, waiter. You know what I mean? It's like he, he takes his time to insert these like teaching moments, which I really appreciate. Yeah. And, and that, again, made my adult stomach kind of lurch because high tea is pricey, man. That's a, a very yeah. special depending on where you go. And the, the Barclay certainly has like <laughs> yes. a nice high tea. So they're in this fancy pants restaurant and they get a whole platter of like finger sandwiches and scones and whatever else, like croissants and shit. And they're like, well, we'll, we'll just charge it to the room. And I'm like, good, there's no one in the room. You can't pay for that. Who's going to pay for this? <laughs> and um, so then the, the cab driver comes in. He's looking for them because he is still, you know, owed what he's owed. And so they run away, and they run down this back hallway where they run into the caped man, the man who was chasing them through the tower. And he's like, give him back. And they're like, give what back? And Eddie's like, I pickpocketed the stones from him because that's my gag. That's the thing I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and again, like, this is a moment where, since you're seeing this from Sue's perspective, slash Susanna, this was a moment where I was like, uh-oh, does Eddie know more about this universe than she does? Because the guy picks him up, and he's like, give him back. And Eddie's finally like... If I give them back, will you let us go? And I'm like, oh, we've got we've got secret knowledge, and secret knowledge is interesting in a universe of complicated twists and turns. Yeah. But it turns out he was just a pickpocket and stole the stones. So, if I disliked anything about this book, that was sort of the thing where I was like, why are there so many rats? Oh, it's just a creepy tower rats, uh, or like, why does the tour group leave them? And I I even started to flip back through because I was like. Who did they interact with? Are they ghosts? Yeah. Like, has anybody else talked to them? Did you do that too? Yeah, I did. I was wondering, are they ghosts or are they following a group of ghosts in this tour group? Is this guy a ghost? There is a like weird way that feels unnatural with the human interactions in this book. The most natural one feels like the front desk guy who's just kind of like perplexed. He's like, oh, go go get some food and maybe we'll fig and try to remember your last name. Like this guy just feels like a hotel worker yeah. who's like doesn't know what to do with these kids. But even the mean cabbies, yeah. the mean old cabbies, yeah. like, got this I'm gonna get you look to them, too. Uh, did we do that earlier with the figures? Yeah, he's got a similar yeah. way where he's presented. The yeah, he's also fingers. presented yeah. in a similar way. He's like, 
You can imagine him Very cartoony, like this big guy. He's probably bald, like stomping, and he's standing in the front door of the restaurant. He fills the whole thing up. He's looking around the tables, yes. and they're like, whoa, we got a duck. Oh, let's go out this back door. You know, and it's very, it's very, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. it doesn't feel like human interactions. No, and, like, even the tour group, too, this bit in the beginning, I feel like, would not be scary for anyone who has ever been on a tour. <laughs> because... Like, when the tour guide is, because like... Because you are just surrounded <laughs> by people and want to get away from them in a tour. Like, a tour of a castle, a tour of anything. You're like, go away so I can look at the scary yeah. stuff. Hey, you old person, get out of my picture of these thumbscrews. Like... Yeah. And then, um, the... When the tour guide is, like... I have bad news for everybody. The door's closed. And he's like, now you have to stay in the tower forever. <laughs> and that's the end of a chapter. And everyone, even the adults in the tour group were like, oh no. <laughs> Every tour guide I've ever had has made some like dumbass, like, now we have to and stay like, in the oh torture chamber. Yeah, yes. And no adult ever goes, oh no. Yeah. I mean, unless they're like doing it at their children. You know what I mean? Like, oh no. <laughs> yeah, that was my dad. I was on a tour of like, famous haunted places in Prague with my dad once and they had like a full executioner guy. <laughs> like they have up. here. Uh, and my dad like, yeah. And, and so like when he came out in this book, I was like, oh, that's the guy. But it was the end of a chapter and I was like, I'm not smart. <laughs> um, and my dad like literally shoved me in front of him. He was like, Sam, protect us. And I was like 20. <laughs> you know, I wasn't like doing that to a, a regular kid, but I was like, oh, come on. What the fuck? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> oh my God. Um, yeah, so they, they run into the guy again in yes. this back hallway, and um, Eddie gives him the stones back. And he awkwardly stacks them. Right. It, there's a bright light, uh, and it works. They're zapped back into... Uh, or they're, they're, they're zapped. Uh, they're zapped, yeah. They wake up, and it's this long, dark hallway, and she sees a bunch of monks, and she's like, oh, where are we in the hotel? And the monks are like, well, this is an abbey. And he never explains what an abbey I know. is. I was as a, a ten year old. I was a little Well, and I don't even know that he knows what an abbey is from his description of the geography <laughs> of the space, because it's like he has these yeah. he has these people walk by in robes, and Sue is like, It's funny to see these people in robes at the Barclay. Maybe they're going to a, a special like tour convention. And you know, even as a little kid, yeah. you know that's wishful thinking. Like some magic shit has right. happened. But then yeah. she proceeds to go they go through the hallway open a door and somehow this abbey also has like a great hall where there's people sitting around a suckling pig and the people are like confused why the kids are there but the old man is like don't leave the abbey and then they go into this yeah, like great hall like, i smell evil around yeah here. what, what um, is... that's right he says i smell evil around <laughs> that's here. that's what i mean like there are a lot of things that seem like they tie into a greater hole but then don't like even in i'm the living dummy when uh lindy is like i did it it was me reading that scene i was like you're fucking possessed the dummy's inside yeah. of you or something and then it just isn't and so she, when i finished the book i was like she was just crazy she just that was an entirely yeah it's an entirely separate wall of rats it doesn't tie into anything and so like when the tour guide when the tour group leaves them too i was like oh shit like why did the did they not exist you know that was another thing that i was like are they ghosts these fucking left. They just left. Every able-bodied, responsible adult in there left two children alone in a room with, like, I guess multiple passageways where it's easy to get lost. I mean, nobody was like, hey, kids. But, you know, the thing is, I liked this one the most, and I even more than Night of the Living Dummy, and I really liked Night of the Living Dummy. And I think what it was is it, it all contributes to this sense of, like, 
displacement. It's like a good version of The Last Jedi. Or not The Last Jedi. Um, what's the new one? The Rise of the Skywalker. You know, The Rise of the Skywalker, it's like you go to a planet, you get a thing. You go to another planet, you get a thing. And it's like you don't have time to process yeah. anything in between the major beats. But here, all of the major beats are different enough that if your goal is to create the way Arl Stein's goal seems to be in this, to create a sense of, of like being lost and displaced and just kind of absorbed by a sense of like not quite understanding where you are or what's happening, like it works. Once you start subjecting it to like actual let's talk about it and try to trace out plot lines, it falls apart, but that doesn't matter in the moment when you're reading it. At least it didn't to me. I was like so into all of these like i smell evil on you and then they're in the great hall and i already know they're in the past like because i'm remembering back to edward and Susanna. but like they still like oh this must be the convention that they're like still trying to as kids justify and understand the reality of their situation and you're right that that geography doesn't make sense because i was sort of like well abby's might have a dining hall where weary travelers or Maybe. Like, uh, groups of people might congregate, but this is like an abbey that's attached to and like behind uh, an eatery, I guess, or something, and, or like an and, inn. And like, there's this poor logic around they have to stay in the abbey because, and you get this explained later on, that's the other place that they're safe. Like, they're safe in the future or they're safe in the abbey. Like, immediately when they go into this great hall, everybody's like, it's them. And then people start to like surround them. Yeah. But again, the way he sort of does this is it's not about logical plotting, I think, as much as it is about asking questions and answering with threats. You know, like, so he asks a question, answers with a threat, asks a question, answers with a threat, so that every time you start to get another solution, you also feel a sense of urgency to get to the next piece of the story. So they, they're chased by these people, they run out, and then they're outside, and it's very clear that they're in the past, because that's when Sue is like, I'm in London, but... It's not the Barclay. I turned around and it's not the Barclay. It's like an old stone building and there's a bunch of huts everywhere. Yeah. And you get the sense, the way that he describes it, he paints it very lightly, but you kind of get the sense that like that London is four huts and like a stone building. Yeah. And it seems horrible. I, I wrote, why is the past so scary? <laughs> because everyone there is sad. The descriptions of everything are just miserable like the oxen that are pulling carts are miserable there's mud everywhere the people are in these long trailing robes that are getting muddy it's awful it's dirty Um, it's stinky and everybody wants to get you it's sort of like today Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, there's a plague you know um yeah so she runs she runs into the guy again yeah the caped man just appears on the horizon and she like turns around and edward's gone eddie's gone so she runs into a hut and she's like can you hide me to this old woman and the woman is like i don't know you kind of got a lot on my plate Um, (laughs) and so sue presents her with the fake money quote unquote that she has in her pocket and the woman is like, oh my god. I've never even seen people. a gold sovereign. Yeah, not since I was a wee lass. <laughs> and so she hides her in a basket. And then the caped guy comes in and she goes, she's in the basket. <laughs> well, not only does she go, she's in the basket. She goes, she's in the basket, my lord, the official executioner or something like that. Yeah, lord high executioner. Lord high executioner. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... 
Sue sort of through like the side of the basket is like, hey, what the fuck, lady? And she's like, well, I can't go against the Lord High Executioner. And so she gets brought up to the tower, right? And she's dumped in a cell. Eddie is there. And uh, he's like, I, he grabbed me. I didn't know what to do. And she's like, and he covered my mouth. It's like, that was the moment, too. There's like, he grabbed me and he covered my mouth so I couldn't shout. And then he was all the way up the road and he gave me to his guards who also covered my mouth. And then he came to get you. And I'm (laughs) like, it sounds very silly. And that moment was very silly. But like, all of these weird contrivances serve to continue to isolate and displace in ways that are effective in the moment of reading. It actually kind of is revelatory how much you can get away with in terms of bad plotting when you think about like focusing on the effect of creating a certain emotional sense, which is what he does very well in this. That's very true. I would argue Stephen King is really good at that too. I mean, the man, I don't think he can plot to save his life. (laughs) Um, I mean, what, what Stephen King book has a good twist or like, you know, a good, um, uh, you know, some damn whatever. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be really fucked if I meet Stephen King one day. <laughs> and you know he's going to have heard this podcast. Yeah. I, I also wrote a blog post just tearing him apart. <laughs> That's going up tomorrow. Um, <laughs> like in It, he writes about this magical turtle for a thousand pages and then it becomes not really a, a thing doesn't really pay off in any significant way but that feeling that there's something coming yeah. that sense of dread is as present in that work as i would say it is in any goosebumps book yeah yeah exactly i mean like night of the living dummy has a very tight plot if you trace back a to b to c all of the big moments have seeds they have you know surprises it's very tight but it's like that's the outlier you can tell that he's throwing these together with when in an attempt to create a sense, and even that's not a perfectly tight plot, but it's like it's a tighter plot. This one, it's like you can tell that he's writing with the intention of creating uh, a certain feeling, and that the way that he does that strategically is he just, every time you've got a question answered and you feel like you've kind of gotten your feet underneath you, he will introduce another element that like displaces you. Even as he's answering questions, because you're like, all right, now we're in the past, we kind of get what's going on, you're still like, Oh no, now Edward's gone. How did that happen? And then, you know, we're back in Terror Tower. So we're in Terror Tower. We're in the top room where all of this got started. And then, is that when the magician comes in? It's gotta be. I I don't remember if there's anything in between. They're like, so that's when Mogrid, did we see Mogrid before? Was he in the tour group? That's the other thing that I couldn't remember is like Mogrid comes in and he's a wizard. He's the court wizard of Britannia. (laughs) And he explains that he had sent the kids, because they are the prince and the princess, and he'd sent them into the future, but that the Lord High Executioner had seen how he used the stones to do that, and so he followed them into the future and got them or something. It's like it's like a small exposition dump, but it's like basically, you know, again, sets up like, I sent you into the future, this guy chased you, and then there's like some like huffing and hawing about like why he can't do that again. Yeah, um, he's like, no, I need to serve all of Britannia with my magic, and the Lord High Executioner will know. So, sorry, you didn't get away. Now you got to die, um, because they're like, wait, they said they were gonna come smother the kids with right. pillows. He's like, yeah, that's gonna that's gonna happen yeah. to you now. 
But we have Eddie has the stones again, right? Like he's stolen. No, Borgren has the stones now, I think, and uh, he's like, we can't. Oh, that's right. He says the magic word. He like tells them what the magic words are. Yeah. So they're like, well, let's go back to the future. And he's like, no, if I send you back to the future and I stay behind, they'll torture me because they'll know that I did something to you, and I I need to serve Britannia, so I can't let myself be captured and tortured. So. Because then no one would yeah, get my magic. He's got to use his magic yeah, for good. You know, he can't come with yeah. them for some reason. They don't think about yeah. it. Yeah, then he goes, but he leaves the door open, and then they're like, sweet, and they <laughs> yeah. go to escape, but then like they're stopped yeah. by his magic, and he's like, no, you don't understand. You literally have to die, so I'm, I'm going to peace out now. Then Edward's like, I stole the stones. Yeah, because Morgred like, gives them a hug. He's, he's like, I'm sorry. Yes. And during that hug, Eddie takes the stones back. And he's like, now I've got the stones. We know the magic words. Let's get the fuck out of here. And at this point, there's also a moment when Morgrid touches their foreheads. And Sue's like, oh yes. my god, he's right. I remember. I'm a princess. They remember their lives. It's like a burning heat. He yeah. touches their foreheads. And that's when Edward says my favorite line, which is he talks about how he had stolen the stones. And he said, the fastest hens in all of Britannia. <laughs> Oh my god, this is, uh, I mean, this felt to me like a really interesting dynamic plot that Arlstein reached the end of and then was like, fuck, I don't know. You you are, that's, that's it, you are from the past. And then the kids in response are like, oh my god, we are from the past. <laughs> yeah. There's also this like weird self-displacement where Sue is like, but they've got the wrong people. Yeah. You know, she keeps saying that over and over again. She keeps saying that to the Lord High Executioner. You got the wrong kids. The Lord High Executioner doesn't seem to realize that Morgrid had, like, wiped their memories. And so he's constantly referring to them as if they should understand what's happening. But they don't. And so, again, it chaps into a real childhood horror where adults are behaving irrationally. And you don't understand why they're doing things. But they have very specific reasons that they're not explaining to you. And that involve you somehow. So it's like, there's lots of those threads that work really well. But... Yeah, it just turns out they're from the past, <laughs> which is cool. That's fine. Yeah. You don't spend a lot of time on it. Edward's got the stones. He stacks them up very efficiently, none of the bumbling, and says the magic words. And then it's just as the executioners are coming up the door, and they hear the, the steps coming, and then the door opens, and it's a tour group of people who are coming to see yes. Terror Tower and don't seem bothered at all by the fact that there are two young children in this stone right. tower that they all walked into yeah presumably dirty and covered in mud and like smelling right. foul because they've been like tossed around and they've had bags over their heads and they've been in baskets and they've been like around chickens and you know chased through muddy streets but like yeah they're just chilling up in the top of terror tower now and they've been that way since the day before right i mean it's the whole they have night not slept. and and into yeah. the morning they haven't slept they haven't showered so it's pretty bad and the whole bit about, like, Morgrid reconstructing their memories, like, isn't it easier and more efficient to say, instead of rewriting their memories to try to adapt them to the future, say, the only way you can escape is if I send you into the future, you're not going to know what's happening, but I bet that this currency is going to be worth a lot, because it's hundreds of years in the future, so I'm sending you with a small fortune, and your wits, and your British accents... So now you're you're part of the like he he makes them American. I don't understand. I know like, Morgrid's this... plan is definitely again it's it's centered around displacing the audience and displacing the reader. There's no reason at all 
for it to make sense. Like, I'm going to send you into a future without adults, where adults are very key to the caregiving experience of children your age, and I'm going to put you in a city that is fully going to expect you to have a home to go to and adults to take care of you. That's the way it is, and apparently I know that because I dressed you up like a teenager from the 90s. And he gives them a camera. And I gave you a camera, and so I know what's going on, and I can rewrite your memories to where you kind of understand this universe. Yeah, it's 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 very <laughs> yeah. clearly like written for convenience sake. But, you know, the nice thing is like now they're back in the future, they have their full memories, and who shows up in the tour group but Morgrid in a slick purple suit. Yeah. Looking fine. Yep. And he's Mr. Morgan now, and he's talking to these kids while they're surrounded by a tour group, and he's like yeah, thank you for bringing me. That was very smart, Edward, for you to wizard your way up here and to bring me with you. But I guess I need to be Mr. Morgan now, and you'll be my grandkids, and we'll live happily yeah. ever after. Like, this is something he's been thinking about. Morgan <laughs> is a piece of shit. <laughs> this feels like some Gandalf bullshit where he's like, I had this idea all along, and you executed it perfectly, proving yourself a perfect apprentice. And then... Yeah, worthy of valor. <laughs> Yeah, worthy of valor. Yeah. It's so bullshitty. It's so, like, uh, I don't know. The ending made me a little furious. But, I mean, whatever. You're going to put a little bow on this. I was a little bummed that we didn't have the high executioner in the future. I mean, you usually go out on, like, a little dark sting of, like, the the evil that remains in the universe with these books. And in this one, yeah. it's like... Morgrid and everybody are just happily ever after going to live in the future, which is fine, I guess. But well, and that makes me think of like not so much the ending of the book, but the ending of the adaptation feels like it sets up a whole series, not just a sequel, but like an entire franchise of like these past kids having adventures in present day London being chased <laughs> by a time traveling high lord executioner. And it makes me think, too, of, like, you know, other Goosebumps books we finish, there's this resonant horror where you finish it and you're like, ooh. The last line of this one, Morgan is like, if you kids are hungry, I could do a food spell. And they're like, we've had enough of spells for today, Mr. Morgan. How about some cheeseburgers <laughs> and fries? Um, and so instead of, like, previous Goosebumps books where I was like, oh, ooh, I closed this and I was like, great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to forget that forever. <laughs> oh, it was so bad. The ending is so dumb. But all of the silliness, oh man, it's just, it's funny to talk about it because all of the silliness and all of the badness of the ending and, you know, all of that gets away from, at least for me, just the sense of, like, there is nothing like that beat that I've experienced in any other Goosebumps, that beat in the middle of the story where they can't remember their na yeah, last names. Yeah, so good. Like, I, there's nothing else that even comes close to that. And even while he starts answering the questions, you're still in this kid's perspective, and he manages to, even with, like, my adult brain, keep me rooted in the fact that, like, maybe, maybe, maybe there's still something wrong, even though I'm, I'm increasingly becoming convinced that, like, they're just from the past or something. Just with her consistently insisting that, like, he's got the wrong guy, but, like, and not fully understanding. So it's a good job of letting me discover along with her. And he knows that ending sucks, because as <laughs> soon as he reveals everything, it's, like, four pages and it's over. He's like, I gotta get this thing wrapped up. Yeah, like, <laughs> And he, he does that with everyone, where he's like, oh, she was a witch. Great. Done. <laughs> um, so I was thinking that, like, 
what was going to happen was that they were going to end up in the past and they were going to meet Edward and Susanna and it was going to be a funny coincidence that they had the same names or something and so they were going to everyone was going to be like it's you you're Edward and Susanna and they were going to have to escape from that in some way but that they were going to be separate people that's interesting yeah so I want to hear what you thought I thought they were going to go into the past and they were going to be Edward and Susanna but that there was not going to have been an Edward and Susanna before they traveled back into the past. Oh. So I thought it was going to end with them stuck in the past in Tower Tower. That's Tyler cool. See, somehow. I like that. That's um, way better. And especially because you don't hear the ending, and so like the idea of whatever the story is about Edward and Susanna, until the, like they get back and then the tour guide's like, and then they disappeared into thin air. <laughs> and you're like, oh, good, good. I was very interested in the idea that they ended up back in Terror Tower, and then like... Maybe we get to find out what the ending of that story was, which is, I mean, I guess we do, but like, with, but in this case, I was thinking it was going to be like, they have to escape Terror Tower again somehow, and then that becomes like the story of how Edward and Susanna live in the past. I thought also there was going to be some like kid in King Arthur's court shenanigans because like they talk a little <laughs> bit about her watch, and like I, ke- I kept expecting like maybe she was going to use her watch to like. I don't know. Like that seemed like a seed of like once you go into the past, <laughs> like, like back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got weird magic here. You know? Do you remember like in Kid in King Arthur's Court? Like the it's been a minute. the movie he like has a CD player and he like opens it up and oh, he uses the yeah, laser to like blind yeah. somebody like, at one uh, point. Back to the Future, where he has the <laughs> the cassette player. He has like, yes. a Walkman, um, and he's like, "I am Lord Vader from the Planet Vulcan." Shit. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I thought there would be something where they would use their... But it's okay. Like, that's another book. That wasn't the book he wanted to write. But that was what I was expecting. I was fully expecting they were going to end up being the Edward and Susanna that were trapped in Terror Tower. That's a bold ending to say, like, okay, so in the beginning of the book, right, if they're like, oh, Edward and Susanna were murdered in Terror Tower, and Eddie and Sue are like, that's spooky, then they end up back in time, and then they realize that they are Edward and Susanna, and then it's sort of like fade out on them in the tower and in the future eddie and sue come into the tower and they're like oh they were murdered in their sleep and eddie and sue are like that's spooky i wouldn't want that to happen to me and then it just ends (laughs) because right like that would check out from a time travel perspective you're like it's the same thing that happened so the same timeline can exist yep here's my theory so this is going to be one of like ben's grand theories um about how these stories get written and there's no way i mean mr arl stein if you hear this, like, let us know if I'm even remotely right. But this is my theory. My theory is that the end was changed in post. Um, uh. I think that, I think that, I mean, while it's very, very good for, like, from a, like, storytelling perspective, for them him to have written it so that you don't know what happened to Edward and Susanna, uh, you know, with that first story, I think that that also kind of allows him to, like, maybe take some strong risks and I'm just wondering if he initially wanted to have, like, the kids in some sort of more horrible situation. He's shown that he'll do that. I mean, with, like, the end of um, The Night of the oh, Living Dummy. Yeah, I was thinking about that, right? Yeah, with the end of Night of the Living Dummy, he has Slappy, like, basically say, I'm glad that other guy's gone, slaves or whatever, you know. Like, it's really dark. And I know that the other Slappy books go to different families or different storylines. So if Slappy appears to this family at the end of the book and then appears to a different family at the beginning of the second book that first family is dead or or at least like (laughs) like they died or at least were used as slaves 
and then disposed of in some way or like yeah. slapping moved on or they bounced town like had to enter witness protection or some shit like yeah that... yeah i mean this is the first time it happens to the kids right that's right. the thing is like in night in dead house or whatever um welcome to dead house <laughs> welcome to dead so many house, nights man blood. <laughs> welcome to dead house it's like it's like the bad thing happens to another family like we've escaped the bad thing but like we see another family pull up and like they're probably not going to escape it and so yeah. that's how the horror remains and, like, you know, the, the bad thing happens to the dad in that, like, he's back, but maybe he's not back. Maybe he's a flower in Stay Out of the Basement, right. you know. But, like, the bad thing never happens to the kids. It kind of does in, like, the closest you can get is Night of the Living Dummy because we don't get to see it. But, like, we have the monster still there behind them going, basically, like, wow, at the end. <laughs> um, yeah, wow, I'm still here. Like, it's the, but, like, <laughs> like but, like, I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like, that's the end, right? Is the monster's like, I'm still here. Yeah. But like the kids escape and everything else. So I I wonder if this was the kids don't escape and then like he gets to the publisher and the was like, You can't you can't kill the kids, sorry. You can kill the dog, but you can't kill the kids. It's this is still a children's book. Yeah. And he's like, Alright, well, fucking Morgrid the a wizard shows up then and what and He's gonna buy him cheeseburgers. What do you want from me? I gotta, I gotta get another twelve of these out this year. I, like. <laughs> I love that idea that he was like near. The, he was cranking out number twenty-eight and close to the end, and then he gets the edits back from Scholastic or whatever, and like, can you change the ending? It's a little dark, and he's like, oh fuck, I don't know. Morgred shows up. They have cheeseburgers. <laughs> And then the editor is like, great, that's awesome. Thank you so much for this change. And I was like, this industry is dumb. And cranks out another 80. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I remember like um, one of the Goosebumps books I remember. Oops, uh, I dropped my pen. One of the Goosebumps moments that I remember <laughs> the most is from like uh, Return to Horrorland or something. And there was like okay. Goosebumps 2000, which was a little like darker it was the marketing thing and uh in return to horrorland the kids enter like a fun house at one point and there's like a dentistry room where all these dentists are drilling into all these kids mouths and so all these kids are stuck inside this room and just the like dentist monsters or whatever are drilling into them and the protagonist runs into one of the dentists at one point and he's like hard and she, I mean, his body is hard. Is it not like? <laughs> no, I, like, I know. No, I got you. I got you. <laughs> and so he, so she's like, oh, he's like metal and wood. The dentists are all robots. And so she's like, oh shit. And so she's running through, uh, and then she hears. So all the kids are screaming, right? Because they're all, yeah. their mouths are getting drilled. And she hears one kid scream, "Help me! He's drilling through my tongue." And I oh just remember, God. like, oh my god. And so when she leaves the room, she's like. Were all the dentists robots? Were the kids robots too? Or were they real? For a long time, I was like, fuck, that's so dark. But then I was like, (laughs) wait a second. If someone's drilling through your tongue, you can't scream, help me. He's drilling through (laughs) my tongue. So they must have been robots. And I remember being like, gotcha, Arl Stein. Gotcha, Arl Stein. That was spooky. Yeah. But you ain't getting me. But that was like my freshman year uh, of college. I mean, I didn't. Uh, that was <laughs> <laughs> that was at least a solid decade that I lived with that um, anxiety. There is something though about this that gets towards. I think Arl Stein. I don't know if Terror Tower exists, but at least he read a book on torture because, like, 
you know, he's talking about like pulling arms out of bodies. You know, he's talking about the thumb screws. He's doing the, the creepy vibe stuff. And well, so the thing that I'm thinking is like, it's explicit enough that you would want to keep that stuff because that adds to the horror element. So if they're like, yeah, you can like get rid of the torture stuff and like, I don't know. This is again Ben's theory about post production edits, but like you don't exchange that stuff for like giving the kids a bad ending. Like if if the kids have to have a good ending, like you still want to have like all those creepy elements that add to the atmosphere and the vibes. Um, yeah, if they're not going to like let you keep your protagonist kids trapped in some sort of like torture house, but I mean I don't know. Maybe this was his original vision. I like to think he's better than that. But he was also cranking out so many of these every year that at some point you just got to give and go with atmospherics. This book is definitely a case study in how well atmospherics work. But I am interested to hear, Sam, because I did not know. You said adaptation earlier. I didn't realize there was an adaptation of this. I don't know how I missed it. You didn't see it? But I didn't see it. How was it? Amazing. (laughs) I I really liked it. Um, How hokey is Morgrid? So hokey. Oh my god, um, I've got to watch it now. Yeah, and one of my favorite additions. So I guess I figured you hadn't seen the adaptation because there's a couple number changes throughout that okay. like, no, would have bothered you. Like, we were talking oh, about no. the dead house in the book. She's like, well, it's four hours away. And in the adaptation, it's five hours. Yeah, like, remember. what the fuck? You were like, why? Um... <laughs> So in the book, they owe the cab driver 16 pounds. In the show, they own 12 pounds. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I know. But someone is like, you know, what, like why? Did someone fact check Arl Stein and be like, you know, the distance that you have them traveling through London. It, it's just not believable. And, like, and he's like, I don't give a fuck. Do whatever you have to do. There's a couple of those. And like their room number in the book is 626 in the show it's 1415 which i was like oh is that gonna be i thought it was gonna be like that's the year that they came from and morgan was like i oh, left the key of how to get fourteen fifteen. what a good thought you had that didn't end up being Thank anything you. it right? didn't matter yeah <laughs> no it was nothing <laughs> maybe that was though so 626 seems like the sort of time where london would be four hovels and a stone abbey like right Versus fourteen fifteen, where it's definitely a city full of people with clopping horses and dysentery and, like, all of people throwing poop out of windows and all that stuff. Like, right. That's why I say, like, Arl Stein didn't really throw in a lot of specifics about where exactly we're going. Because yeah. Because he's just sort of, like, the past. But there's <laughs> no utensils. There's no plates, even, or anything. There's just yeah, like, chickens, muddy roads, and, like... A stone building where people are skewering a hog on a stick and roasting it over a fire. And he also, like, he says that the Great Hall, where everybody's eating, is lit only by two fires. And I was like, (laughs) nobody has candles. There's no no other candles. candles. Um, No. So I was just like, so strange. Um, But yeah, so uh, one of my favorite bits in the adaptation is when they go into the restaurant in the Barclay the i don't know maitre d or whatever is like this is uh jackets required for young man <laughs> and uh <laughs> eddie is like well i don't have a jacket and so the guy brings him a jacket and puts this big ass jacket yes. on him. yeah it's giant then they're sitting in the restaurant and they look over and there's this lady like fancy lady daintily eating the cake and they look over and she sort of mirages into a past lady it, 
brutalizing a chicken oh leg, God. just like gnawing on it, and there's grease and shit everywhere, and it's this sort of like vision of the past, and Eddie has another one earlier on. They're in the tower, and Eddie is like, hey, someone wrote a message here, and then they see Morgrid's face, and he's like, go back, and then later, when they meet Morgrid, Eddie's like, oh, it was you that we saw in the tower, and uh, then, well, I, I guess I won't say the end if you want to watch it. Is it highly different no it's just they they get on the bus uh and they have two stones and they're like what happened to the third one I'm like i don't know oh. and then the lord high executioner comes in and he's got the last stone and he's like da, da, da. that's why i was like this feels like the pilot to a whole series of adventures where in time is carmen san diego yes. basically yes. um and I would watch it. That actually would be, I mean, it, it's probably too budget high for like a, I don't know, man. They could like recycle the sets from Night of the Mummy and like have an Egyptian one where they traveled into the past and they're like in Egypt. Yeah. They could like, Welcome to Dead House. Oh God, could be like yeah. the 1960s in America, Americana. Yeah, that's true. Um, so many different things. So many different places. Why didn't they do that? I don't know. Should have been a spin-off. Well, and, and it felt very much like... I mean, there was a Goosebumps Horrorland video game that it felt very much like that. There's just like, like a lot of kooky things happening. There's a great moment that I love at the end of the book. It's maybe when they're running out of the cell away from Morgrid. And they've spent half the book running at this point. So Sue is like, <laughs> Eddie, run! And I'm like, that's, that's fun as a reader. Like, you're fucking, you know you're running. And then in the show, yeah. uh, there's a point when Eddie goes, run, run, run. That's all we do anymore. And I was like, uh, was, <laughs> nice. Um, nice. The climax of the adaptation is also a nonsensical delight. You will. Oh my God. I'm so excited. <laughs> my favorite adaptation moment so far is definitely from the uh, Gak one, Monster Blood, where you have the woman hissing at the giant dog in the window. That's just very clearly a green screen with a picture of like a dog's face. It's even grainy because it's too close. Like the camera's too close to the dog's face. They've enlarged it too big. And she's just hissing at it while there's a weird pile of gak behind her and the dog's barking and she's hissing and then she falls into the gak (laughs) and disappears. It's just, and she's giving it her all with like embodying a witch cat. I don't know. Like, it's the, it's the, Oddest yeah. choice. So many good moments. So I'm I'm really excited to see some hokey climax shenanigans. Yes, you will not be um, disappointed. I thought you were gonna say the moment of Monster Blood where his friend goes, Oh, I'm um, I'm Rachel Evans' friend and she's like, Oh, from the Chicago Evans. Oh, so Chicago Evans friends. <laughs> that was a good that was a good joke. That was a very well written yeah, joke. Yeah, that was that was a good um, one. So what are the lessons learned from this this Sam? This book. That's a good question. Why did we like it? Because we just talked about it for, what, roughly an hour, and all I could think about was, I've got, I feel the need to justify, given how hokey and dumb our explanation of this thing sounds, <laughs> like, why it was good. So, what was good well, about this? Why I, I mean, like definitely, it? like, there are certain signifiers for all these archetypical narratives. Like, if you have a mummy narrative, certain things happen, right? There's a curse there's bugs and if your dad is infected with a certain thing or possessed there are certain possession beats that you hit and it feels like all the previous books we've read have just sort of been watching those beats happen and for this one it starts as sort of the same thing we're like it's creepy they describe what 
thumb screws are, there's rats, there's an executioner. Yeah. But then you hit the point where both you and I were like, fuck, I don't know what this is. And that was really exciting for the second half of the book. Where you're just trying to figure out the, the mystery or the bit. And those are always the sort of stories that I engage with more, where I'm like, it's not just, you know, we got to stop this vampire or whatever, but it's like, what is the thing? You know, when you watch like an X-Files episode, did, did you ever watch X-Files or like Buffy the Vampire? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there were always episodes that were like, Mulder would be like, Scully, I think we've got a werewolf on our hands. And then it's like them trying to stop a werewolf for the rest of the episode. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, yeah. But then you would have ones where Mulder would be like, well, I don't know what he's, what what's happening. And Scully would be like, are you telling me that this man can grow extra arms in order to rob banks? And you're like, is that the <laughs> bit? I, and so like, those would be the episodes that I'd be really into because I'm like, he stretches and, and gets under escalators or shit, you know, that's, what the fuck? Um, yeah, it very clearly presents a, here's a mysterious man chasing, but like, it makes the bold choice of like, getting the kids to the safest place possible, which is their parents' hotel, and then it completely undoes the safety of that place, which opens up a new mystery by like, not only having the parents not there, but like, also having the kids unable and impossible to find the parents, because they can't remember who they are, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And then they double down on that because they can't remember what the previous day was right. like. What happened yesterday? I don't know. Like, I can't remember what's wrong with us. Yeah. Like, so you've taken the externalized threat and you've, like, minimized that to a more horrific internalized threat, which we haven't really done before. Like you said, there's no roadmap to easily follow for this. Yeah, it's, it's something unique, which I really engaged with. And in general, those are the sorts of stories that I always like. But I feel like that's sort of obvious, you know? I feel like anyone could be like, well, I like the when it's more unique, more than like... <laughs> So I don't know. Um, I like good stories. Yeah. I also, I, I was saying this to our friend Jen the other day. I was like, I like talking to Ben because I feel like I'll explain something sort of. Or I'll be like, yeah, and it's like the X-Files, you know. And then Ben will, will, <laughs> will say what I meant. Or he's like, yeah, it's true that there is a, uh, a macroscopic narrative that we then compress. Into <laughs> a, and I'm like, yeah, man, that is what I meant. I don't know. He's just more articulate than I am. <laughs> Uh, no man my thought when you said remember x-files was remember star wars tng because i like there's one episode on on that that's like um i can't remember what it's called i think it might be called ship in a bottle but it's a bottle episode the one where everybody starts disappearing and dr beverly crusher is the only one that realizes people are disappearing the logic of the universe keeps reasserting itself every time people disappear so that even though there's no reason what by the time they get down to it it's like her and most of the bridge crew are still around and like maybe 50 other people and they're like why on earth would we staff a uss enterprise sized ship you know with 30 people to go explore the galaxy what are we supposed to do and then it's finally just her and jean-luc picard and jean-luc picard and her are the only two people on the ship and they're like and she's like you know none of this makes sense right and he's like this is what we've always been doing we've just always been on the starship traveling space together exploring things and it's got this interesting you know horror element where you know you're on board with the mystery and it's so different from anything else it's like you're you're stuck in the point of view character who knows something's wrong but isn't able to quite put her finger on it but the rest of the world isn't quite lining up in this one we're stuck in the point of view character who knows that there's something wrong 
and you know discovering the elements of the world unaligned with their narrative it's it's funny to discover that your own story about yourself is incomplete or untrue and so that's i think what was most interesting about this is like you take your monster which you know has always been an external threat whether the external threat is in the house or whether it's in the family or whether it's in the neighborhood or whether it's you know the toy this creepy toy like there's always something outside you take that external threat and it's there but it's not the big threat of this story like suddenly the big threat of the story is like maybe my whole story about myself is wrong and maybe there's something wrong with me that's what they keep asking like what if something's wrong with us what's wrong with us you know and that's a interesting scary energy that i haven't seen explored in these before yeah i think in stories especially genre stories but maybe stories in general there needs to be a tension or an inevitability that's interesting i mean if you're going down the slide and you know you're going to hit the ground and then you hit the ground you're like great so if you know you're reading a mummy story and but at the end there's a mummy you're like okay cool i get it cool but if yeah. at the end then it turns out that there's something else you go down the slide and you don't hit the ground that's interesting and I think that yeah. there needs to be a trust that when you are in an inevitable narrative, that the eventual point of inevitability then turns or becomes something different, right? Or if you're in a tension narrative, hmm. you don't know where the slide is going to go and you're not even sure that you're on the slide, right? So yeah. this felt like... So, so I would argue that previous Goosebumps books that we've read have mostly felt like the slide narrative and then you hit the ground at the end and you're like, okay, that was a fun slide. Um, yeah, yeah. The only exception to that might be Night of the Living Dummy where the ground does move for a second when Lindy admits, like, it was me the whole time, right? Yeah, but even then it's like, it's a twist and a turn in narrative. I guess it's similar to this in that it's at the halfway point and you're like, oh shit, but this is still called Night of the Living Dummy so we've, we've still got a lot of book to go. You know, yeah, so uh, if that was called something else, if it was like two girls, one dummy or something, it's <laughs> like, um, you know, creepy things are happening and they don't know what's happening. And then it turns out it's the sister and then there's another 50 pages left when you'd be like, yeah, shit, where is this going to go now? Yeah. Versus like a complete tension mystery of like, why are they forgetting? Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think that like the thing about this one is since we don't need to hit key signifiers, there is a lot more room for atmospherics. Um, That's true, And, yeah. you know, we're not trying to get to the plot point where we discover that there's a scarab. Like, the only the only convenient plot element, aside from, like, our weird expositional things, is that Edward's good at picking pockets. And so we see that early on, yeah. and we know that p pocket picking is going to be a thing. Right. And then other than that, it's like we're always discovering, oh, I've got some coins in my pocket. Okay, I'll use those. Oh, wait, these coins don't work. Oh, I'm at the Barclays. I'm at the, you know, hotel. Yeah. I go upstairs. Oh, my parents' room is empty. You know, like, so it's like we're able to, since we're playing with this narrative where, like, we don't have to hit key beats, we're able to, like, just focus on introducing each beat. I, I think of Mirakami, actually. Um, it's funny. Or not Mirakami. Um, what's the guy who wrote... Uh, who wrote... Uh, the one about the English butler... And then oh, the uh, one about... Kazu Ishiguro? Ishiguro, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kazu Ishiguro. So um, this is my... This is another fun thing. Is We're going to play the Ben Can't Remember Proper Nouns or Names <laughs> of Things game. What's the name of the book where that's named after like the love song and it's about the people in the future? Oh, you know, uh, Never Let Me Go. Don't Let Me Go. Yes, 
Never let me go. Never let me go. Never. Yeah. Don't, don't do it. Let me go. Don't. Don't ever. Never let me yeah. go. But that. Yeah. So that book does a great job of introducing and answering questions in every chapter. So like you know you start consistently through the, from the perspective of this young person who's being raised in this like society where or this function where she knows she's limited but doesn't understand quite how. And you as the reader don't understand how, quite how you're figuring it out with her. And every time we get to a new point where we've solved a mystery, that opens up a new question. Okay. And so it's like pure atmospherics, that whole book. I haven't it's read like, it. It's you know, a, near the top of my list. <clears throat> it's great. It's, it's, like a, it's like a case study in how to, like at least for me, build atmospherics through exchange of information. Because like every time you get a piece of information, that opens up another question so that you're kind of plotting your way forward. And this is kind of how this one felt. It's like, after we get past the rats, I mean, you're kind of always in this space where we're like, are we in the past or in the future? Okay, now we're clearly in, in the present or whatever. We're clearly here. But after that, you're just kind of constantly answering and asking new questions that have to do with a plot element that was introduced in the previous chapter. So the money doesn't work. That's, an, that's a mystery. We get that it's not real money or that it's somehow older money. Yeah. Um, the parents aren't there. And then like, you know, we're just falling our way down the chain deeper into the mystery as we go. Yeah, you can even um, grow the mystery instead of just move down the tunnel sort of like yeah. beat by beat. I mean, that's a, that's a good point that you make about there being a need for signifiers when you're in a certain structure. And then once you leave that structure behind, you have much more space for other elements. Yeah, and it felt freeing in the way that like, you know, we talked about elements in and then you can tell me to shut up because i know i'm babbling here but like we talked a lot about welcome to dead house how there's just spooky things for spookiness sake and you know like there's just there's just the fact that like the the weird wind thing happens when the windows close yeah Um, Yeah. you know and there's there's just the weird fact that there's like voices and like the clothes are being rearranged you know And, and none of that really ever comes back to serve plot elements but like that kind of weird atmospherics is kind of what felt like this thing was doing, but in a more justified way towards building a very specific mystery. Like in that one, you never get an answer as to why they keep laying her clothes out on the bed. Um, You don't really get an answer as to what the deal is with the window or why outside that it's creepy. But like in this one, even though you don't get answers about things like the rats and the external physical present threats, you get answers around like, you know, sort of this gradual chain of information that leads down the path that they're from the past. That's interesting. Um, That's definitely something that I think about in my own writing as far as how, how, how wide do you open the door when you're bringing in certain world elements? Like, you can mention that there's something sort of over there, but if you dwell on it too much, then the audience's attention, or the reader's attention, is drawn too far in that direction. But you can sort of offer glimpses that there are other things happening. Like, like do you ever see Hostel, the movie Hostel? No, I haven't seen Hostel. No. It's pretty great. I, I know it's like yeah. seen as this big sort of torture porn bit, and it certainly is in parts, but it starts, there's three friends uh, going to uh, maybe Amsterdam. I kind of forget. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. In the beginning, they're going through this um, like brothel, and he's looking down the hall and seeing into all these rooms where different people are sleeping with different uh, women, or like doing different acts or whatever. And then when they get abducted and taken to the, like, murder hostel or whatever it is, I kind of forget. It's been a while. He's being dragged down the hall, and he's looking into all these other rooms where people are being tortured in different ways. And it's a complete echo of that same shot from the beginning. 
but it's all just glimpses that there's a larger world, which is something that you've said before too, that like, it's, it's nice to have glimpses that there are larger things at play, but if you stop and look into one of the rooms, then we start to question after like five seconds or so, why are we spending so much time on this thing? Yeah, how is this going to come back later on in the plot? Yeah, but if it's just a glimpse of like, there's also rats or like, there's also this other shit, uh, you know, there's stuff happening in the carnival as a whole, then that is more intriguing, I guess. I guess just like well, I, I, I think it's like cu- it's cumulative. Like you know, there's kind of this weird question, and this is a writer question. I think is like, how much attention do you pay to something before it becomes a plot promise? Mm-hmm. Because as readers, yeah. we're always looking for the information to be recycled in efficient ways. You know, even if we don't know it, even if our brains don't know it, our underbrain knows it. So that when we start talking about this story, we're like. Yeah, that was weird with the rats. Or, yeah, what was the deal with, like, uh, the? I mean, the three stones come back. So, like, the rats is kind of the biggest weird outlier where it's, like, there's literally just a sea of rats in the sewer somehow. Um, <laughs> just there? That, like, or, like, the people. tour group leaving them. Yeah. Like, why did the... Or the tour group leaving them, them? yeah. yeah. Um, like, yeah. and you spend enough time in the tour group and know, as a human, what tour groups are like, so... Yeah, so you have these questions where if you look at something for too long, and the question is, how long is too long, right? If you're building atmospherics and world elements, like you want to have things that contribute to the sense of the atmospherics, but, you know, I guess it's just a cautionary tale that, like, maybe it becomes that weird wind. Because, like, that's such a promise in uh, Dead House that the the shutters are constantly, the shutters are closed, the windows closed, but the the blinds are moving like it happens so often it's a ghosty thing and i guess that's fine by the end but like it's such a kind of like benign horror for the main character that like the fact that the main plot has literally nothing to do with really any ghostiness because they're more like you know zombies at the end is just is just weird yeah so like it's worth thinking about like if you're seeding atmospherics how much becomes a promise you know, in film, it's five seconds looking right. in a room, maybe, um, or the nature of the reaction shot. But, like, what's a reaction shot in narrative prose? Yeah, you know? because every story um, is a mystery, right? Even if it's a romantic comedy with no, like, quote-unquote mystery, there, there's no, like, intrigue. The mystery is still, like, how is this going to work out? So you're storing information as a reader or an audience member to see how things are going to work out. So if you are shown like a sea of rats for long enough that you're like, this is important information, I'm going to store it. You expect the rats to come back. Or like, even like if somebody had earlier on completely acontextually been like, yeah, there are a ton of rats in London's underground. Then as soon as you get into the underground, you're like, okay, this is where the rats happen. You know what I mean? Like acontextual information or really paying attention to information means that it for some reason is going to come back in our brains and if it doesn't it feels discordant yeah because you only have so much space in your brain if you're putting into storage this information about the rats or the tour group or whatever and then you end up not using that storage space for anything there's this feeling of like well what the fuck i used like eight gigabytes of whatever memory it's like (laughs) it wouldn't be that it'd be like three kilobytes or whatever Um, but then maybe that's what makes a really good mystery too is that like if something doesn't seem important and you've stored it at a very low frequency or whatever, and you're like, oh, yeah. shit, I did, I never noticed or, like, didn't realize that Clark Kent and Superman were in the same room at the same time. In a good mystery, maybe um, the seed is, it's, like, so deeply planted that, like, the surprising, valuable experience as a reader is to have it come back. So, spoilers for Knives Out, but have you seen Knives Out? Yeah. So, like... 
that's an anti-mystery where we know what happens pretty early on and we play out, you know, sort of whether or not it's going to be discovered. But one of the things that's seeded very early on that to me feels like a, a mystery coming to full fruition is the old man saying um, that of uh, Chris Evans' character that he's a smart kid, but he wouldn't know a real knife from a fake one. And yeah. Um, yeah. and it's seated very lightly. It's just like a character beat. And then, you know, at some points you see Chris Evans as an ally. At some points you see him as a, as a villain. You know, at some points you see him as like an outsider that's kind of like a trickster chaos character. Yeah, he goes um, from red herring to ally to antagonist. And yeah, and does a lot of, of jockeying. But, you know, there's a moment at the very end where he goes into a fuck it, I'm going to kill somebody moment. And he he ends up not having known a, a real knife from a fake knife. And it's a really, really effective both way of visual storytelling, but also of like, you know, giving savvy readers, readers, right, in quotation marks of a script, um, people who are paying attention to mysteries, a real like satisfying sense of like inevitability yeah. from just that small piece of information, that one line it, at the beginning. Easter egg for a second watch, because I didn't get that the first time I saw it. And the second time I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, he sure doesn't. Well, he sure did in the movie theater. Like, like we really didn't. You guys see that? <laughs> Whoa, from earlier. He, like, I love. That's also my favorite. I don't know what I got that from, but that's also my favorite bit. Uh, to like a character comes in and they're like, "It's me, the doctor from Act One or whatever." It's. Like... <laughs> Bet you didn't expect to see me again. Yeah, yeah. I was just a riot one-off character. <laughs> I, and I love doing that when I'm watching a movie, and they're like, well, I had the key all along, and I'm like, oh, from earlier, to my mom, who's like... <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, information in stories is interesting, but, I mean, overall, so, Sam, what would you give this in terms of spooks? I, I would give it um, a thumb and a half up. It's that... Um, but I also, this was the least scary one to me. It was the most like, ooh, what's going to happen one. But I would say probably the scariest one is still, the one that'll stick with me the most might be Stay Out of the Basement. Um, Interesting. So maybe we need, uh, there's not enough time I think today because I know you got to go do a thing. Um, uh, well, at, at five. So. Um, I feel like uh, maybe a mini-sode um, is worth uh, doing a ranking here of, of our <laughs> All right. Goosebumps 1 through 6, 1 through 5, number 7, and then number 27. But, a definitive but, ranking? A definitive ranking, but I mean, also, I think it's very important. You gave me one and a half thumbs up. I, I need to know what that translates to into spooks, because even though this isn't necessarily the spookiest so far we've got two spooks up we've got a spook and a half up we got 10 spooks up um, <laughs> do you you have a, a a list of all the spooks that we gave them no i'm just going off of my memory in terms of my my own ratings and i need to i need you to translate your your thumbs to my spooks i'll give it one and a half spooks oh one and a half spooks and one and a half thumbs yeah how very convenient yeah. it's a one-to-one ratio no you know what i'll, I'll... <laughs> I'll give it one and a half thumbs, but only one spook. Well, only one spook. Okay. okay. How about you? I, uh, I think that if we're saying spooks are a quality rating, um, I, I'm not going to say that actually because it's not a quality rating; it's a spookiness rating. I think this is also probably lower on the spookiness 
I'm going to give it one spook up as well. I think that we're in alignment there. Nice. But I think I've got to give this a solid two thumbs up in terms of the reader experience. This is the best um, reader experience I've had. And coming off of the heels of Night of the Living Dummy, I think that's actually kind of impressive that I was more taken by this one than that one because I thought that was going to be the high the high point of this seven book series. Yeah, that is, um, that is fair. All right, I've got a definitive ranking of what I think from best to worst Goosebumps books. That we've oh, read. okay, good. So, Sam, let's review for our people out there. What have we read? Um, we've read Welcome to Dead House. Uh, Stay Out of the Basement. Okay, good. What's three again? Monster Blood. Oh, the <laughs> fucking Monster Blood. Okay, uh-huh. if Monster Blood is anywhere but the bottom, I'm going to be furious, but let's just keep going. It's, um, yeah, it's Basement Floor. Uh, number four... Uh, say Cheese and Die. Right. And then... Uh, Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. And then um, Night of the Living Dummy and a Night in Terror Tower. Oh, this is going to be hard. Okay, you got your rankings. Uh, I put a Night in Terror Tower at the top, followed by Night of the Living Dummy. Okay. Then Stay Out of the Basement. Okay. Then Say Cheese and Die. Okay. Curse of the Mummy's Tomb... And Welcome to Dead House are sort of tied, but Curse of the Mummy's Tomb is probably a little lower. Really? Okay. And yeah, in fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch. I'm gonna say one. So, st- uh, Welcome to Dead House, Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, and then Monster Blood. Nice. I mean, I feel like I'm pretty well aligned with that. Let me just let me think about this. So, I mean, if I'm giving you my definitive rankings, I definitely am with you on one and two. One and two is definitely. Uh, Night and Terror Tower followed very closely awesome. by Night of the Living Dummy. Apparently, he's really good at knights. Arl Stein's good at knights. After that, gosh, my white guilt won't let me allow <laughs> allow me to put Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. I think much higher. Um, that was just such a problematic book in so many ways. I, I mean, and it really was. It was very like it was probably one of the more surprising with the way that the protagonist and antagonist yeah. relationship ended up playing out. Um, it was more grounded than I was expecting. Yeah, and it was pretty legitimately spooky here and there, but it was also just icky. Felt bad. Felt bad uh, being scared yeah. of all these brown people. Um, and even though he was a brown person, it just didn't work. It didn't, didn't work for me. So, I, I mean, I think with that, I'm going to have to defer towards... Uh, I don't know, man. I really... I, I don't think Stay Out of the Basement is, is going to be my next one. I think it's going to be Say Cheese and Die. Nice. All right. And then I think it's going to be, after that, actually, weirdly enough, Welcome to Dead House, and then Stay Out of the Basement, and then Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. And then, of course, the bottom floor. The the BB in the parking garage. When you see that BB, like, little button that you push in the elevator, that means I'm going to the very bottom basement. Right. That is where we are with Monster Blood. Like, it doesn't even come close. Well, we agree on a lot of it. Uh, We switched... Two, four, and one around in the middle, but we agree that twenty-seven and seven are the top, and five and three are the bottom two. And this is definitive, guys. I mean, this is what is true yep. about their quality and their ranking. Here, so, here we are, um, two white straight men telling you how it is. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> Who knew we had opinions on things? <laughs> um, but um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I don't have much else to say about Terror Tower. I'm sort of looking at my notes. 
Um, yeah, so next what we're going to do, um, we've been living in this Goosebumps universe, and I think I want to return to it. I mean, how are you feeling about coming back to Goosebumps in the future? I would definitely, point? I would love to come back and do some of the older kid Goosebumps, like Goosebumps 2000. Um, mm, the the spooky ones with children getting Yeah, or um, uh, Fear Street. I, I don't think I ever read any Fear Street, so okay. I'm going to do some okay. of that. Um, how would you feel right. about that? Yeah, I, I, I like I like the idea. I want to do other Scholastic stuff, and I want to give a fair shake to other Scholastic horror stuff in particular, like Series of Unfortunate Events, which, I mean, I don't know how much any of this can be. Like, the, the genre boundary definitions between adventure and horror, I think, is really hard to define with some of this Goosebumps stuff, which has been what's been most surprising to me, is how much they feel like adventure books. But, but yeah, I would want to come back to this universe... Next, we're going to go, though, into something completely different, which is our good old friends, the Animorphs. Awesome. I'm excited. Yeah, it's going to be a wild ride. I don't know. I, I'm sure that you guys definitely need to hear our opinions on the Animorphs. I don't, I, I don't know why anybody needs to hear our opinions on the Animorphs, but it's going to be a fun review. I'm like really excited about rereading these because when we first started this podcast or started talking about them, I went into a... Um, fury of <laughs> quickly i mean i was just like i was i became like consumption itself i suddenly like downloaded and started rereading all of these old versions of these books that i hadn't read since i was like a little ninth grader eighth grader seventh grader are you talking about animorphs then, or like a bunch yeah of yeah yeah okay. yeah so let me restart the narrative here basically when sam and i first started talking about this we had pitched the idea of doing some sort of quasi-scholastics things, and I was like, yeah, like, maybe we'll do some Animorph stuff. And Sam was like, yeah, maybe we'll do some Goosebump stuff. And we started, like, listing out different series that we might want to read, and I immediately went and read, like, the first five books of Animorphs. And, um, <laughs> I was like, I'm halfway through the first one, and Ben was like, cool, I just finished number five. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, um, so it was really, it was really fun, first off, and I'm really excited to go back to actually talking about them in terms of, like, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of themes. We've gotten... The first Goosebumps felt very themey, and I'm interested to see, actually, with Animorphs, because I think the first Animorphs is very themey, but, like, once it becomes a series, I'm remembering that it started to be a bit more adventurous and spooky, and it'll be interesting to see if that continues to hold true and sort of what your thoughts are. Because the first one's, like, playing with... Goosebumps is playing with Americana and, like, you know, playing with, like, small towns and, like you know, steel workers and economics and then and we're not just like over analyzing it. It's very clearly there. I don't think so. No, it, it, Do you think we're well, analyzing it? Yeah, I did really make a face, didn't I? Um but yeah. no, I, I was thinking about how little we talked about that with this particular book, because it, it just like it didn't feel like there was much there to to really dig into. Like at most Well and it hasn't period. Like I feel like yeah. since even like Stay Out of the Basement, Stay Out of the Basement was spooky and it was kind of like you know the thematics tend to be like what is the horror but it's not like it's trying to say something about something which is kind of what the first goosebumps felt a little bit like is like it's true this is what makes we haven't had any other goosebumps that are about like society right that are about a group of you know what i mean well and this seems like it has some feelings about the british and londoners um but There's there's not even enough there to, to really talk about, I think. I mean, I, I don't know why he believes that the he has such a bleak depiction of the past. 
And it'd be one thing if he was like, you know, you have a lot of people saying like, oh, I would love to go back to the 1950s and walk around on the streets. And then you have uh, people of color saying like, yeah, that sounds like a great time. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so it'd be one thing if like there, if um, race or ethnicity was an element in this, that he was like, it's, it's not what you think going back in the past. Um, as a white body but it's again it's but it's just dirty i mean it's like he's reacting to you know there's a lot of kids go back to the past movies in the 90s and it's like and now you get to ride a horse and now you get to make a bike out of i'm gonna do a lot of king and king arthur's court stuff you're gonna make a bike (laughs) out of wood yeah you know what i mean yeah like you're smarter than everyone because you know about like basic geometry you know um yeah but <laughs> this has not got any of that. Yeah. Nothing's good. Um, yeah, there, there's no additional narrative here. Um, I don't know. It's weird. I, I just, like, yeah. it makes me feel bad knowing that there's a future out there where um, the waiters bothered to bring out tea and scones and everything to a couple of kids who then vanished. And Who just vanished? Yeah, they didn't get paid for that, you know. Um, Neither but, did that cabbie, man. That cabbie. That cabbie. He's just he, he rendered services for no payment. These poor workers. Yeah. Maybe that. Maybe that's the underlying thematics behind this is these like rich kids from the past. You know they may be on hard times, but they're princes and they're princesses, and they're just abusing the working man. They come into this new system and they're like, I should just right. be able to go where I want, eat wherever I want, because that's the way that it is. Yeah. And they they're like nah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they exhibit that privilege really well. And, um, again, they... We're reaching. <laughs> and, again, they, like, talk about stomping on the working man. They leave Morgrid behind to be tortured to death without a second thought. They don't bat an eye. Um, nope. And then Morgrid is like, oh, thanks for bringing me. And instead of... They, they quickly... This is my read. They quickly cover being like, oh, yeah, good to see you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah, I totally meant to bring I mean, him. Susanna had no idea, because Edward was the one with the stones. He's like, yeah, I just, I just did it. Yeah, I, I totally meant yeah. to do that. and the stones are, are white, so if you get, like, um, oh my enough, God. if you click three white people together, and you can have whatever <laughs> you want in this society, I don't know, um, I... save me from myself. <laughs> oh, this is so good. No, point being, the thematics are definitely, like, not i feel like beat you over the head but they're subtle and they're there in the first one and i think this is going to be the same thing we'll see with animals yeah. i mean we're going to read it but i think we'll see the thematics are strong and i'm interested to see if it keeps up or if it's just like and now we're on an adventure which might just be the way that it is when you have to write 70 books as a part of one series or whatever well but, yeah you um, can read that we'll get into about like um puberty and like changing bodies and shit that I'd be interested to get into. So we'll see how that yeah. goes. But anyway. All right. Um, anything else about Terror Tower, Ben? Any final thoughts? Uh, no. Um, so, guys, I guess that's it. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. We'll be. <laughs> I'm going to keep my sign offline being that's it. That's just going to be. I'm going to like. It. I'm sorry, Steph. <laughs> don't, don't be. All right. Um. I... That's it. Good night. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, we did it.